Zarathustra's Prologue, Part 4. Zarathustra, however, looked at the people and was amazed. Then he spoke thus. The human is a rope, fastened between beast and overhuman, a rope over an abyss. A dangerous across, a dangerous on the way, a dangerous looking back, a dangerous shuddering and standing still. What is great in the human is that it is a bridge and not a goal. What can be loved in the human is that it is a going over and a going under. I love those who do not know how to live except by going under. For they are those who go over and across. I love the great despisers, for they are the great reverers and arrows of yearning for the other shore. I love those who do not first seek behind the stars for a reason to go under and be sacrifices, but who sacrifice themselves to the earth, that the earth may one day belong to the overhuman. I love him who lives in order to understand, and who wants to understand, so that one day the overhuman may live, and thus he wills his going under. I love him who works and invents, that he may build a house for the overhuman, and prepare earth and animal and plant for its sake, for thus he wills his going under. I love him who loves his virtue. For virtue is the will to go under, and an arrow of yearning. I love him who holds back not one drop of spirit for himself, but wants to be wholly the spirit of his virtue. Thus he strides as spirit across the bridge. I love him who makes of his virtue his addiction and his undoing. Thus he wills for his virtue's sake to live on and to live no more. I love him who would not have too many virtues. One virtue is more virtue than two, because it has more knots for one's undoing to latch onto. I love him whose soul squanders itself, who wants no thanks and does not give back again. For he always bestows and would not preserve himself. I love him who is ashamed when the dice fall in his favor and who then asks, Have I been playing falsely then? For he wills his own perishing. I love him who casts golden words before his deeds, and always keeps even more than he promises, for he wills his going under. I love him who justifies those to come in the future, and redeems those gone in the past, for he wants to perish by those in the present. I love him who chastens his God because he loves his God, for the wrath of his God must be his perishing. I love him whose soul is deep even in being wounded, and who can perish from the smallest experience. Thus he goes gladly over the bridge. I love him whose soul is overfull, so that he forgets himself, and all things are in him. Thus all things become his going under. I love him who has a free spirit and a free heart. Then his head is simply the entrails of his heart, 
yet his heart drives him to his going under. I love all those who are as heavy drops, falling singly from the dark cloud that hangs over the human. They herald the coming of the lightning, and as heralds they also perish. Behold, I am a herald of the lightning, and a heavy drop from the cloud, but this lightning is called overhuman. Hey everyone and welcome to section 4 of Zarathustra's prologue. This is the second section where Zarathustra is giving discussions about the overhuman. We met him in the section just before this, Zarathustra's prologue part 3, where we got a very high level overview of the potential reality of the overhuman as it relates to being an evolutionary possibility. We learned a very little, little bit at a high level about what the overhuman was and how it's the meaning of the earth according to Zarathustra's new philosophy. And in this section, Zarathustra gives uh, quite a quite a large number of higher level descriptions of characteristics, dispositions, and attributes that the type of human being that could possibly lead to the overhuman has within him or her. And Zarathustra goes on sort of describing these people, saying that he loves these characteristics. And again, as we'll see, since this is a high-level overview, we may not understand exactly what he's talking about. But if you try and picture aesthetically what Zarathustra is saying, what Nietzsche here is saying, and the type of person that he's describing with these characteristics at a high level, I think you'll begin to understand not only that a lot of Nietzsche's writings in this book are based on an aesthetic understanding of what he's talking about, but also not necessarily requiring deep analytical investigations into the philosophical basis of these things, but sort of how these things look, how they might be good, and trying to picture that sort of person with these virtues, with these characteristics the sorts of things that they will do with their lives, the sort of development that they individually will take on within their lives, how they might add to the community around them, add to their friends around them, and generally be the type of person that supports the continued upward trend in evolution that Nietzsche and Zarathustra so dearly care about. So let's get into it. There are a large number of one-liners and we're going to see a lot of similar things that we've seen already in the first three sections where there's a lot of allegories that have to do with directions and heights and going over and going under. And I will try and go through basically all of the lines I'm going to try and get through and try and describe a bit more of what Nietzsche is trying to get at with these descriptions. So Zarathustra, it starts out, he's looking amazed at the people because... We ended last section with him being laughed at and the people in the market square, the mob, the rabble, sort of mocking him because they don't understand him. So he tries to go on and explain more about what's good. So the first thing he says is, The human is a rope, fastened between beast and overhuman, a rope over an abyss, a dangerous across, a dangerous on the way, a dangerous looking back, a dangerous shuddering and standing still. What is great in the human is that it is a bridge and not a goal. What can be loved in the human is that it is a going over and a going under. So with these first three sentences, 
we're really getting a strong view of Nietzsche's way of seeing reality that human beings and where we are today aren't the end point of history. I think a lot of people, the way that we learn about evolution in school, the way that we learn about human beings, even the way that we talk about our current history in, in, in the sense of living in the modern era, or living in the postmodern era, uh, certain people even talk about this being the end of history. Uh, that's more of a early 2000s, end of the 20th century view. But a lot of people say, wow, look at where we've come. And we live in our generation right now. And everything seems to have come to a fulmination here where we've figured out a lot of stuff. And we're sort of done doing all the evolution, done doing all the philosophical investigating, sort of done doing everything. And Nietzsche's sort of propounding his view, view at a high level here, saying that the human, the good thing about the human, and it's interesting to say that he, it's the good thing in the human, what is great in the human is that it is a bridge and not a goal. And he's really saying here that the process of evolution doesn't stop with human beings. It continues going on and sort of echoing what he said in the Zarathustra's prologue part three, all beings so far have created something beyond themselves, and you want to be the ebb of this great tide, and even go back to the beast rather than overcome the human. Zarathustra here is just continuing on with that trend of saying, no, evolution, the process of development, keeps going on, whether we want it to or not. That's just the way reality works. It's continually in flow. And it is continually in flow in a way that you can't really have any, any stasis in any way. And this is going to be an important thing that we see in Nietzsche and Zarathustra generally, that will to power is the defining feature of reality. And that means that there's a certain amount of forward motion and buildup of forces and continual flow of things trying to push into the future in a more complex way, in a more powerful way. And that if you try and remain static, the very nature of reality doesn't allow that to happen for too long. And we're going to see a bunch of that described later on in the book. But he says, you know what, human beings are, we're a rope between beast and overhuman. We're, we're this process that's a dangerous across, a dangerous on the way, a dangerous looking back that being a human and being sort of a conscious being, we can be aware of the danger of our reality, the danger of our existence. We're the only being that we know of that is conscious of its own mortality. And that consciousness raises all sorts of elements of knowledge of our suffering, knowledge of danger, knowledge of potential loss. And that nonetheless, we are still a continually moving process forward in evolution. And so we are not the end goal of reality. We are not the end goal of evolution that regardless what our wishes may be, reality will continue developing around us. Humanity will continue developing around us. And as we're going to see in this section, in the next section, we can either keep going on our dangerous path through time and try and push the limits of what's possible and evolve upwards to become the overhuman continually challenge ourselves, become more interesting, become more complex, become more multifaceted, become more competent, or we can try and be as safe as possible and not really 
go on the way, not go across, not go down. And if we remain static like that, we will eventually breed a type of person that is a lower evolutionary form than what the overhuman is uh, potentially going to be. And if you sort of think about it, um, if, if you have a large number of people and you build your society and you build your customs and regulations and your ideals around playing it safe, not taking risks, not really tempting anything, there's a certain almost opportunity cost of losing out on developing skills, developing certain interests, developing different insights into life that definitely happens. So even picture anyone that you know who, you know, maybe isn't really pushing the boundaries of their human existence in any direction and compare it to someone who maybe works a really difficult job where they're experiencing a bunch of new things or they're volunteering on the weekends or volunteering in the evenings to try and do things or they're taking a, a sport relatively seriously and trying to develop themselves, whether it's a martial art or a competitive sport or uh, if someone has a hobby where they draw pictures or they paint or they write or they record things on their computer, there's, through the process of doing those things and sort of tempting yourself to always exist in your own growth zone where where things are potentially slightly dangerous you're not comfortable you're you're sort of continually testing yourself and pushing the bounds of what's possible for you that is really what in our lives leads to positive development and growth and not just growth in the areas that you're applying yourself towards so if you if you take a martial art, if you take uh, jujitsu or judo or karate or Muay Thai or anything, not only are you developing very good skills and sort of making sure that you have a healthy body and that you're fit and you're active, and if you have a healthy body, you have a healthy mind, there are outside of the physical and psychical benefits directly related to that martial art or whatever hobby you're doing, there are a multitude of ancillary benefits that sort of spill out from that that you may not even be aware of. Uh, a pretty easy example to think of would be ha there's a common trope or a common theme amongst martial artists that if you're a black belt in any martial art, you, you're probably one of the most dangerous people in a room or in a crowd, but uh, it's generally not those people that will start a fight. That generally martial artists are seen as having immense amounts of personal character that and it, a and it creates a personal philosophy and a personal virtue that you don't go around harming people that you're actually one of the more morally upstanding people in your community and your group of friends and whatever and so not only by sort of challenging yourself and pushing yourself to take on new hobbies take on new tasks not only are you just learning the skills and ins and outs of that hobby but you're also developing uh, character traits, you're developing personality characteristics that are very beneficial. I sort of even describe it as, uh, even for myself doing this recording, not only am I learning by doing this recording how to try and take a book and explain it in a simpler way and learning how the recording software works or learning how to speak maybe in a better way where I say um and like less, and I know I do say that a bit, so my apologies. Not only am I doing that, but 
as soon as I sort of hit stop and finish up editing and put it out there for people to listen to, I'm in a great mood. And so if my friends are coming over or I'm seeing my family afterwards, I'm just energized and in a great mood. And then that effect carries on into their lives. And so generally if I'm hanging out with my friends in the evening and I'm more energetic and in a more positive mood, they'll have a better time. And then that will spill into how they're feeling and maybe give them more energy to take on something that they want to do. So that's to try and think of what Nietzsche is saying here, what Zarathustra is saying here about life being a dangerous across, a dangerous on the way, a dangerous looking back and a going over and going under. I really try and think personally about pushing yourself, um, making yourself uncomfortable and putting yourself in those positions to sort of enlarge in your sphere of capability as a person. And then, you know, that's something that not only passes through to my friends, my family, to myself in different ways, but if I have kids one day, my insights into life are going to be more developed than someone who hasn't done those things potentially because I've seen a broader sphere of what's possible in human life and I can pick out the things that are better and be able to describe certain experiences or understand how hard work is beneficial at building character and thus push my children in that direction as well. Um, growing up, I was... <laughs> I was forced to do a whole number of things that I really hated during the time. Um, and I'm going to tell one story that <laughs> makes me sound like an idiot, which there will be many stories like that. Uh, so growing up in Canada, my dad every morning would make my brother and I wake up at 6.30 to go play hockey for an hour, hour and a half uh, on one of the outdoor rinks every morning in the winter before school. So Monday through Friday, up at 6.30 to go play hockey, and I hated hockey. I absolutely hated it. I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, but as a result of doing that, I got very good at hockey. I have a skill that I enjoy using now. I can go skating. I can play hockey. Uh, my brother plays in a, a rec league, so he makes a number of good friends and contacts through that. Uh, and even just having the, the experience under my belt of getting good at something that I don't like doing, that builds a certain amount of character that now when I have children... I'm definitely going to ensure that they have that same character trait too because I wanted to I wanted to not struggle. I wanted to just sort of relax and sleep in. But having seen the benefits of it uh, as a result of a lot of suffering and doing a lot of things I didn't want to do, I understand that it's valuable and worth it. And I know that that story makes me sound like an idiot. When I tell it now, I realize that my dad was one of the greatest <laughs> greatest fathers you could hope for. Uh, you tell a story about some dad taking his two sons out to play hockey at 6.30 in the morning every day, and for most people who enjoy sports, that's the greatest story you could ever tell. It's almost, it's almost so cheesy it couldn't be in any movie or TV show because it's almost so corny in how great a father he was being, and me, of course, being very thankless about it until now when I realized the benefits of it. So... That's sort of what I'm seeing here when Nietzsche is saying the human is a rope uh, between beast and overhuman, a rope over an abyss, a dangerous across, a dangerous on the way, a dangerous looking back, a dangerous shuddering and standing still. It's human beings, we're, we're going to develop whether we want to or not uh, ourselves through the course of our lives and our children and their children and their children after them. And since the there is a directionality in the way that we're evolving in the institutions that we're building and the things that we value um, it's good to 
try and aim upwards towards those skills and values and attributes and character traits that are strong and valuable and promote healthy growth. Um, so Nietzsche continues, Zarathustra continues listing some of the attributes and traits that he enjoys in humans that sort of, similar to what I just described with a couple of stories, promote upward evolution in the continued strong, positive development of individuals that they can sort of pass on to their friends and family and to their children and so on and so forth. I love the great despisers, for they are the great reverers and arrows of yearning for the other shore. And so here, Zarathustra, similar to how we saw in the previous section where he's trying to get us a little upset at ourselves, at our, at how our souls are poverty and filth and wretched contentment. He's trying to he's trying to make negative emotions positive. And this is an interesting thing in Zarathustra and Nietzsche's philosophy generally, and it sort of goes against the whole good-evil paradigm that uh, simpler, earlier thinking structures would have you believe in, that good and bad and good and evil are opposite values, when really Zarathustra sees a lot of negative things as containing very possible benefits. So whether it's suffering, whether it's um, hatred and despising, that you can use these things as a creative individual to harness them and direct them towards positive things. And so here Nietzsche says, I love the great despisers. They are the great reveres and arrows of yearning for the other shore. And I think most of the time when people are confronted with someone who's full of hatred or full of animosity or, uh, again, if you're at a cocktail party and someone's talking about how they hate something, is generally considered bad manners and, oh, how could this person be so uh, brusque or how could this person be so so crude as to speak of hatred? Um, Nietzsche here sees it as one of the very valuable emotions that people who despise something, generally the reasons for which they despise that thing are the complement of great reverence for something else. And whether it's sort of uh, another example, and you're going to hear a bunch of things where I hate popular music, but people who, when I hear bad music, it just bothers me so much. And I want to hear beautiful, eloquent, uh, complex music. And I love it so much that my love and respect for sort of the the highest heights of human achievement in music I have such a respect for that realm of things that when I see the continual downward development or the continual growth of just bad music that's getting hundreds of millions of hits on YouTube and everyone's singing it all the time I hate that stuff so much just because I know that so much better and so much higher is possible that I don't that that hatred uh, it, it's a result of me having these higher beliefs and these higher standards that I sort of get very sad when I hear these things and that people are only listening to this garbage because it basically only uh, lowers them and makes them think that only only low-quality music where there's so little variability in the, in the beat and the lyrics and everything's about just really basic stuff. It, it's just sort of an annoying thing. So I love the great despisers for the, the great reveres and arrows of yearning for the other shore. And that that love and that sort of feeling, it will guide your actions into the future to, I don't know, if I like classical music or more complex music, 
I love it so much and I hate the other stuff that when I hear that stuff, I'll try and put on better music or I'll try and send better music to my friends to try and get them interested in it. And then that sort of despising through time has the potential to continue the upward evolution in tastes and trends and stuff like that. Zarathustra goes on, I love those who do not first seek behind the stars for a reason to go under and be sacrifices, but who sacrifice themselves to the earth, that the earth may one day belong to the overhuman. I love him who lives to, in order to understand, and who wants to understand, so that one day the overhuman may live, and thus he wills his going under. I love him who works and invents, that he may build a house for the overhuman, and prepare earth and animal and plant for its sake, for thus he wills his going under. And so these three sentences are, again, similar to what we've seen before, where Zarathustra is preaching, preaching love of the earth and love of things in reality that we can see and touch and deal with, rather than anything behind the scenes. And so Nietzsche here and Zarathustra are, are praising those, those attributes about people that keep their interests and their passions and their creative building capacities geared on things about the earth that we're not we're not using our understanding to and using our intelligence to think about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin that we're not wasting our time doing that but that people are living to understand and want to understand things about the earth who can work and invent and do things with the earth and come up with useful ideas that help us here and now rather than dealing with over earthly hopes or over earthly questions and so here again a strong love for the earth and a strong joy and thanksgiving about things of the earth uh, the next section has to do with virtue i love him who loves his virtue for virtue is the will to go under and an arrow of yearning i love him who holds back not one drop of spirit for himself but wants to be wholly the spirit of his virtue Thus he strides as spirit across the bridge. I love him who makes of his virtue his addiction and his undoing. Thus he wills for his virtue's sake to live on and to live no more. I love him who would not have too many virtues. One virtue is more virtue than two, because it has more knots for one's undoing to latch on to. And so virtue, uh, people who have dealt with philosophy would have a better idea probably of what virtue is. Other people may not have really come into contact with the idea of virtue before it might be just something that you've heard in highfalutin fancy sounding speeches usually from politicians where they talk about our virtues as a country or whatever uh, virtue the easiest way i can describe to understand virtue is personal traits of excellence so sort of the the adjectives with which you would describe a person that are most fundamental to their character and sort of govern the way that they will respond in a variety of actions. It's, it's sort of a self-imposed constraint or just a very fundamental value of each individual person. And Nietzsche contrasts himself quite a bit from Aristotle, who's sort of the previously reigning champ in the field of uh, virtue ethics. Aristotle basically said that there are a whole host of virtues that everyone should strive to have. He basically got this by taking a look around at the nobles within Greece that uh, were contemporaneous with him, and basically coming up with a list of dispositions 
that they took towards either different spheres of human life or different emotions. And he came up with the list of the appropriate disposition, called those the virtues, and then basically said if you do too much or too little, you're, you're straying too far on one side or the other. So for example, and you can look this up on Google, it's a handy little chart, it's nice to think about. Aristotle's virtues, uh, there's a big chart of, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them that he came up with. And I'll give you a couple examples. When, when dealing with fear, for example, he, Aristotle took a look around at the, the best people he could find and saw that the best stance towards fear and fearful situations or things where you don't exactly know how to act, you're in your growth zone, whatever it is, the, the best attribute is courage. If you're too courageous, if you're too pig-headed, if you're too brash, the, the excess of courage is rashness. You're making rash decisions. Uh, while you should have courage and take on things, you shouldn't be stupid about it, basically. And the, the opposite of rashness would be cowardice. If you don't have enough courage, you're, you're going to be a coward and you're not going to take on enough things in your life. Uh, you're not going to have the right attitude towards challenges or problems in your life. You're going to run away from them. Another example would be self-expression. So Aristotle said, well, self-expression is an important sphere of human action and the disposition that a good person, a virtuous person would have is one of being truthful, that you you are honest about things. Uh, and he sort of sees that as the midpoint between boastfulness and sort of uh, understatement. Uh, and so when it comes to speaking about yourself or speaking about things, you don't want to be bragging because whenever you meet someone who brags, they, it's just sort of an ugly, buffoonish type thing. Whereas if someone is constantly underrating themselves or being modest in a fake sort of way that's also sort of irritating whereas if you're truthful about your accomplishments and you're not over boastful but you you sort of say very plainly what you've done and if it is good you sort of comment on what it was that was good uh, that's sort of the the best way of behaving so that's sort of a quick overview of virtue generally and sort of the classical view of virtue that aristotle had and he very much emphasized that you need to have all of these things that uh, he looked at different people within Greece, all the nobles, and said, okay, well, all these people seem to be very, they seem to be very well disposed to every type of situation because since they have all these virtues and since these virtues sort of contain the correct sort of dispositions towards a variety of different fields of life, Aristotle said, well, the most capable people in Greece, the noble class, and I'm sure there were nobles that didn't have all of them, but if you, if you sort of took them in aggregate, you would come up with someone who was a beautiful human being that always tended to act uh, the correct way. And so Nietzsche here sees virtue somewhat differently. He sees virtue very much as, again, one of those passionate things about ourselves that can motivate us to further ourselves and better ourselves. So as, whereas Aristotle's version of virtue would certainly lead to behaving the right way in certain situations, again, we're getting the sense of Nietzsche very much focusing on development and positive change, where not only will the virtue 
uh, help you in different situations. We'll also see later that Nietzsche thinks that virtue is possibly inhibitive towards people and inhibitive towards what they can accomplish. But he sees it as a very strong anchor uh, towards living a certain kind of life and that by taking these virtues, by taking these excellent things and forcing yourself to live in accordance with them, you are the embodiment of that virtue and you are growing the, the power that that virtue has on the planet Earth and the degree to which that virtue, the effects of that virtue sort of spread forth from you. So whereas for Aristotle, it was much more of a sort of personal thing and certainly Aristotle's virtue ethics did redound through classical Greece and it, did, it was involved in his politics, certainly. It was uh, Nietzsche's sort of taking that idea and trying to root it more in this idea of personal development and the development of uh, human things on earth. I love him who loves his virtue, for virtue is the will to go under in an arrow of yearning. I love him who holds back not one drop of spirit for himself, but wants to be wholly the spirit of his virtue. Thus he strides the spirit across a bridge. I love him who makes of his virtue his addiction and his undoing. Thus he wills for his virtue's sake to live on and to live no more. I love him who would not have too many virtues. One virtue is more virtue than two because it has more knots for one's undoing to latch on to. So again, it's very much this wanting people to get very passionate about the virtues that they have. Uh, and the last point there where he says, I love him who would not have too many virtues. One virtue is more virtue than two because it has more knots for one's undoing to latch on to. That's an important distinction between Nietzsche and Aristotle. Whereas Aristotle sort of emphasized that everyone should strive to have all of these virtues. Nietzsche's saying, no, 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 that's, that's not really right. From Nietzsche's perspective on humanity and how every human is different, uh, we're going to see later on in the book that for Nietzsche, the issue of virtue isn't so much about trying to be a particular type of person, to try and be a Greek noble, Nietzsche sees virtues as a very personal thing that instead of us all trying to behave in certain ways that are expected of us or that we might want to idolize that aren't really true with the type of person we are, that we should really introspect and look within ourselves for what values we embody. Uh, Nietzsche very strongly believes that there are different types of people on the planet, different categories of people. He thinks that philosophers, for example, are a different category of people, and as such, they developed in a very different way from the rest of the human tribe, and that they have fundamentally different characters that are predicated on different values. And whether you're the, the philosopher or sort of the warrior type or sort of the gatherer type or the political type or whatever type of human you are and however you fit into the human species that everyone is different and that we should look for the things that make up our characters and focus on them. And so Nietzsche here, when he says, I, I want people to not have too many virtues, uh, he's sort of alluding to that. And we'll see that a bit later in the first book of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And I like the idea that he says, one virtue is more than two because it has more knots for one's undoing to latch onto. Um, when you take that in context with what he just said about making making your spirit the the spirit of your virtue wanting your mindset to be wholly the mindset of your virtue um 
it's very interesting if you're if you sort of think if you're a single-minded person if all you want to get really really good at is basketball and playing basketball if you spent all your time and focused all your energy on playing basketball you would be a much better at basketball but b you'd be facing since you're spending all your time on basketball you'd be getting farther and farther into more and more nuanced aspects of the game that people who wouldn't people who haven't spent all their time thinking about basketball wouldn't even get to. I saw this uh, very interesting, this is a couple of years ago, very interesting interview uh, between some sports reporter and LeBron James, who is number one in basketball uh, of our era by far. And so the reporter said, well, how do you feel being the master of the game? Like, you've perfected it. And LeBron sort of had the he sort of laughed at that he said no 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 there's still miles for me to improve and it really sort of signified that even people who are single-minded about what they want to do and lebron said this himself he's constantly picking out things that he's doing wrong that maybe to the untrained eye no one else could pick out but since he's such a master he's facing problems that people have never faced before and he's picking those out and becoming better and better at basketball and pushing what's possible within the realm of basketball farther. So it's the same sort of thing with virtue. If you have one virtue, if you're single-minded and your your mind is sort of the embodiment of a particular virtue, whether it's honesty or courage or uh, daring or adventure, um, if you're single-minded about one thing, you're more likely to as an embodiment of that virtue, push the development of that virtue farther, see how it interacts with different parts of the world. And if you're only doing one thing, you're going to go farther in that direction and push the development of that thing farther versus having, if you're trying to spend all your time developing the 12 or however many classical virtues Aristotle said, you'd certainly be sort of a magnanimous, beautiful looking person. At least you'd look something like a Greek noble, but you wouldn't have the time or effort to sort of push all of those even farther because you're you're focused on being sort of an overall good human being. So again, we're going to get into virtue a lot more in this book, and it's definitely the way that Nietzsche views ethics. It's the, instead of coming up with some set of rules about how you should behave or coming up with some end to which everyone should work, Nietzsche very much sees ethics as being... Uh, the proper decisions being made by people who are virtuous and people making decisions based on their virtue. I do think there is a bit of teleology here because he is also saying that we want the overhuman to live. Um, teleology is just uh, when things are focused on the goal. Uh, so everything is viewed according to the goal that you've set. So after talking about virtue, uh, Nietzsche again, he goes on, with a lot more of these sentences, he says, I love him whose soul squanders itself, who wants no thanks and does not give back again, for he always bestows and would not preserve himself. I love him who is ashamed when the dice fall on his favor, and who then asks, have I been playing falsely then? For he wills his own perishing. I love him who casts golden words before his deeds, and always keeps even more than he promises, for he wills his going under. And this is sort of a... These are nice attitudinal perspectives for people to have so when someone is squandering their soul who wants no thanks and does not give back a benefit for he always bestows and would not preserve himself 
this is someone who just tries to give as much as they can, who tries to spend themselves in the service of reality, in the service of ascending life, in the service of self-overcoming. I really like the line, and this is going to become fairly important later on in the book. I love him who is ashamed when the dice fall in his favor, and who then asks, have I been playing falsely then? Um, there's a big thing that Nietzsche will focus on later on in this book, talking about chance and randomness and probability, and how um, a lot of people feel very bad and feel slighted and feel resentment against reality when the odds go against them. And Nietzsche here is sort of flipping that perspective on its head and he's saying people should be ashamed when they get lucky they they should want the struggle they should want to not have to rely upon getting lucky to advance in life that if you get lucky you, you're missing out on an important challenge and so you can sort of think about people who have won the lottery it's a very frequent case where People who win the lottery, they quit their job and they just sort of fritter away the rest of their lives or lose all their money and they sort of stagnate as people and that even though they have the same amount of money in the same house and the same car and the same perceived status as someone who maybe earned that money, the earning of the money and the struggle involved in sort of building a company or, or coming up with a new way of doing something, being an inventor, uh, that luck should not be a replacement for struggle that the struggle in itself is an important thing because that will help us sort of develop ourselves and learn from the the bad aspects of the struggle um i love him who casts golden words before his deeds and always keeps even more than he promises again this is just the picture of someone who promises high things and then works their ass off works their butt off to to do better than that um, and again, as per the rest of this prologue, there's a lot of, a lot of things that we will get into that seem to be the output of a lot of Nietzsche's actual philosophy. So for now, just continue trying to picture different people who you might know, or people that you see in movies that sort of fit these characteristics. And, and when you think about them, you, you sort of might think, yeah, I, I would like to hang out with that person more rather than this person. I think that person's more of a beautiful person. Um, so I like the line here. I'm going to skip down a couple. I like the line here. I love him whose soul is deep, even in being wounded, and who can perish from the smallest experience. Thus he goes gladly over the bridge. And so I think that, and Nietzsche certainly has many ideas on how... In how human souls developed and how they sort of gained depth and how it's sort of the result of a lot of inward-focused cruelty towards oneself and sort of becoming self-conscious as a result of needing to express pain and needing to express to other people certain things and that a lot of it was driven by suffering. And what he seems to be saying here is that people who are very sensitive, people who are very conscientious about things, people who can be offended slightly, they often get a lot of negative energy from those things, but uh, if they channel that negative energy in a positive way, they can do a lot with it. And so if, if I was a fat person and if I was very sensitive about that and someone called me fat, Nietzsche's here seeming to say that I will be so offended and so 
angry and so sad because of that comment, if I'm sensitive to it, that I'll have a lot of motivation to do something about it. And Nietzsche would basically, Nietzsche would basically here say, okay, well, you have all this energy, you're very sensitive to, to attacks on your person, use that energy to, to go to the gym to try and improve yourself, to try and better yourself. Don't take that energy and start trying to implement a bunch of rules about anti-bullying and all this stuff that, and I know I'm sort of oversimplifying things, uh, but the idea here is that negative energy can be channeled in a positive direction for ourselves rather than just trying to lash out and hit the person back and try and, I don't know, censor them for saying something mean about me. So... Nietzsche here is really telling us to take ownership of ourselves, to even try and take our pain and channel that towards positive growth rather than not channeling it towards positive growth. It's similar to what we saw in the last section where uh, he was trying to stir us up and get angry at how lowly we are to use that energy in a positive way to grow ourselves. Nietzsche continues, I love him whose soul is overfull so that he forgets himself, and all things are in him. Thus all things become his going under. To me, this, this is sort of speaking to the idea of someone, and generally, maybe it's the dreamer class, or maybe it's people who like to understand, or maybe it's people who are so absorbent of the world around them, maybe the insatiably curious, who take everything into themselves, and they try and have this big understanding of the world, and big, they try to contain the whole world inside their own heads, and it's sort of this... For Nietzsche, I think the way he's describing it, it's is this beautiful image of just sort of a lover of reality who wants to take everything into himself. And someone who tries to take in as much as they can about the whole world, I, I sort of relate this back to what we talked about in Prologue Section 1 about people who want to become sons themselves, people who want to become stars themselves, who take so much into themselves that all the pressure of all those things sort of jumbling together inside them will one day lead to sort of releasing it in a well-ordered, good way. And I sort of think about this, uh, at least in the realms of knowledge. I tend to, and you see this a lot, Nietzsche, you see this a lot in probably the best thinkers that the world has, is not just their specific knowledge about certain things or how much they've memorized, but people's ability to see patterns between different fields and people's ability to see connections between seemingly disparate things. I think Nietzsche is very good at that. I think that people who are very intellectual are good at that. Uh, and I think that that's what he's going for here, that people who are trying to sort of take everything in and trying to arrange things and trying to sort of understand everything to see where they fit in are generally ones who who can... who all things become important to that person because it has to fit into your framework, it has to fit into your worldview, or else it doesn't work. And so that's what I sort of think Nietzsche's here saying, where that he forgets himself, he sort of forgets his normal day-to-day -day concerns because he's so obsessed with trying to bring all reality into him and that any sort of little thing, in as much as it pertains to that, could be his going under, that you're, you're so concerned with all these little details sort of fitting with your worldview that 
if anything's wrong or out of alignment, that can that can be disastrous to your worldview. You might need to rebuild it or rethink certain aspects of it. And that that sort of going going under, that sort of going back and working on it is a positive thing for human growth because eventually you, you, you come up with a better worldview, you have a better understanding of things, and you can then share those gifts like a star would with the people around you, your community, your family, your friends, and people through history if you happen to write anything down. Uh, he continues further, and again, this this line is similar to the one I just read where it's a very sort of lofty and sort of beautiful-seeming goal it's a bit hard to describe. I love him who has a free spirit and a free heart. Then his head is simply the entrails of his heart, yet his heart drives him to his going under. Uh, Nietzsche here, he uses a couple terms that <laughs> in a couple other books he, he does a good job of clearing up, but he certainly doesn't do it here. Um, free spirit and free heart. And so in Beyond Good and Evil, I think at the end of either the first or the second chapter, um, Nietzsche is talking to really his type of thinker and a new group of philosophers who are coming up who are very light on their feet. Like I mentioned before, they can go swiftly from idea to idea and they can sort of jump around in a very easy, lighthearted way and that they're not tied down to any particular idea they're not tied down to necessarily any particular belief system that they're trying to drag around with them and at the end of that section Nietzsche warns his free spirits against the people who generally call themselves free spirits and I think that those are the types of people that you might be most acquainted with or might first think of when you talk about someone who's a free spirit I think when I picture someone who a random person might say is a free spirit, I picture a really kind of vapid granola type person who more often than not is posing in terms of the person that they are, who who thinks that people should just be allowed to do whatever they want and be the realization of your happiness on earth and a lot of sort of vapid nonsense that because it seems to be sort of spiritual and seems to be freed, free in a sort of ugly sense. They, they get the term free spirit too, but here in Nietzsche it means something very particular where you it's thinkers who are very severe in their thinking and very skeptical in their thinking, but they can play around easily with the ideas that they have been severe towards and they can take the conclusions wherever they need to without being sort of hamstrung by sort of difficult problems because they've sort of thought about it. And even if they do come across a problem, they can, with uh, with their powerful mind that has sort of dealt with a number of issues and seen through them, they can sort of more quickly or more subtly or more... Uh, so it's almost got a connotation of sort of a happy thing, a sort of joyous use of someone's mind. Um, they can more easily deal with those issues. Uh, Nietzsche, again, he also, in several places, points out that a lot of people think that analytical thinking or philosophical thinking or any sort of hard thinking that one has to do is generally a very serious, slow affair. 
that when someone's uh, someone comes in with a problem to work or to whatever the sort of expectation they have is okay everyone we have some serious thinking to do and the mood sort of dampens and darkens and everyone has to be very profound and it takes a while and you have to be very slow Nietzsche very much at least for himself and for for the sort of thinkers that he admires and thinks are on their way he really thinks that this is a ridiculous thing that's laughable that thinking in itself is sort of a joyful ride it's a very high tempo fast-paced enjoyable exciting thing and so free spirit in his connotation sort of entails all these things, much to the contrary of either vapid thinkers or serious plotting thinkers. And so when Nietzsche says that someone's head is simply the entrails of his heart, entrails is basically the intestines, sort of your digestive system. He's saying that whatever your heart desires, whatever whatever you want in life, whatever direction you're oriented um, and he's speaking about a particular type of person here, that your spirit, the way that you think about things, the way that your mind deals with things is simply the, the digestive faculty that helps your heart figure things out. So if your dream is to, again, using basketball as an example, if your heart says, I need to be a basketball player, I'm going to be the best basketball player there ever was, that if you're, you have that sort of bodily disposition and drive to do that that your spirit your mind is simply the digestive tract that deals with the problems that come up when you're trying to become a good basketball player so it's not only just a bunch of practice it's also thinking okay well how do i throw a good free throw what happens if uh, the point guard comes over and tries to block me here what do okay i'm gonna take a look at some of my idols in the field of basketball and see what they do and try and determine if i can do that that very much this spirit is sort of this stomach-like entity, which is definitely something that Nietzsche says in many other places, in, in many of his works. He says that the spirit most resembles a stomach, that people's ability to, to deal with truth, uh, they can almost be rated in terms of how strong their intellectual digestion is. And so I, I sort of like this, and it's sort of a neat idea. And I think if you think about that basketball example, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Nietzsche finishes this section off, and I know that this has been a particularly long lecture, but there's a lot of, again, allegory and pictures that I needed to get into. Nietzsche ends this section off with sort of a, a recall of what we heard at the end of section three. I love all those who are as heavy drops falling singly from the dark cloud that hangs over the human. They herald the coming of the lightning, and as heralds they also perish. Behold, I am a herald of the lightning, and a heavy drop from the cloud, but this lightning is called overhuman. And so this sort of, this is an interesting way of looking at it. I think it sort of gets across a couple of interesting points, that Nietzsche sees the in the continued development of man, and in his case the upward development of man, more complex creatures that are they're sort of foreshadowings of what's coming so if you think about let's use uh let's use basketball as an example if you think about the greats through history in the field of basketball and maybe this is a bad example because i don't really know that much about basketball if you think about the greats in basketball, Michael Jordan comes along and sort of redefines what's possible in the realm of basketball. And then 
15, 20 years later, LeBron James comes, and wow, he's even better, and I don't, again, I don't know too much about basketball, but go with me here, and don't get angry if you think LeBron isn't as good as Michael Jordan, but in whatever field it is, the person who's best at it now is every now and again being replaced by someone who's better at it. In the Olympics, uh, Usain Bolt shattered the world record that was previously set by someone else, that constant, this constant sort of upward development is bringing individual examples here or there that are sort of coming as a foreshadow of what could happen. And I like the imagery that Nietzsche uses, saying that it's coming from the dark cloud that hangs over the human. And this, to me, really points out that the, the development of the type of spiritual creature, the type of mental creature, the type of human that we can become in this continual development of our minds and our way of seeing reality and the way that we base our actions off of what happens in our minds and the way that we try and become better through history. I, Nietzsche very much, I think, is alluding to nihilism here and sort of the death of God and that there's a great weariness that a lot of humans have that you know we're at the end of history, there's no up or down, there's no ultimate value in things, there's no... There's no point to what we're doing. And to me, this is sort of suggesting that these, in terms of the development of man, that the type of people Nietzsche's talking about are ones that come from having experienced that. That it's not going to be a direct sort of jumping over of one type of human to the next. That it's not going to be a night and day transition. That it's very much predicated on having suffered through some of these issues and having dealt with some of these issues so again it's sort of like uh sort of to you go back to our sports analogy uh Usain Bolt didn't just sort of come down from heaven and was immediately this awesome runner sure he might be genetically predisposed to being a great runner because he's got really long legs and maybe a great cardiovascular system whatever but there's also a lot of hard work and effort and struggle involved in that and Nietzsche here seems to be speaking on a more, uh, instead of just struggle when it comes to wanting to be good at sports, Nietzsche very much here is talking about the struggle that people have to go through sort of spiritually and mentally to deal with the facts of reality and come out on the other side sort of emerged as better, stronger human beings. And so that closes off this section, and we get into the next section, we're going to talk about basically the antithesis to what Zarathustra has been talking about the last two sections in terms of people who really push themselves, people who desire to be better, people who want to better themselves and better the way they see the world and take on the necessary struggle that is involved in doing that. We're going to meet the last man who's basically the opposite of that, who doesn't want to struggle, doesn't want to do anything and sort of leads to the potential opposite of the overman. So thank you for joining everyone, and I will talk to you soon in Section 5 of Zarathustra's Prologue. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please make sure you go to the iTunes store and rate the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @alexjdrake. If you know of anyone that you think would like this show, please share with them. And for more information, you can visit me on my website at alexdrake.ca. Thanks everyone.